Hey, podcast listeners, Mackenzie here. I wanted to personally thank you for listening and being a part of our community. We couldn't do this show without you. As we shape the next series of the Living Centered Podcast, I wanted to invite you specifically to help us out. We want to hear from you. We're currently in the process of curating a series all around exploring the relationships that make up our lives. Together with various experts, clinicians, and on-site alum, we'll explore the nuances, intricacies, and impact of the relationships within which we all exist. From families of origin to friendships, dating, working relationships, and beyond. We hope to host conversations with guests who bring a definitive and unique perspective. This is where you come in. We want to know your pressing relationship questions. You can submit your questions to podcast at experienceonsite.com and you might just hear an answer on our next series. What I always like to say to people is that like a dysfunctional family and a loving family are not mutually exclusive. And you know, in adult child recovery, we have to talk about our upbringings and it's really important that people know that it's not about like placing blame or like throwing our families under the bus, but in order to heal, we have to like understand the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey everyone, I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Andrea Ashley. Andrea is the host and producer of Adult Child, a weekly podcast about the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Andrea grew up in an alcoholic home and was the only child of an alcoholic mom and dad. She turned to drugs and alcohol at age 12 and became the focus of the family for the next seven years until she found sobriety. During this insightful conversation with Lindsay and me, Andrea shares her story of growing up in a loving but dysfunctional family and how after nine years of sobriety, she came to the realization that her next level of healing was going to require her to take a long look at the impact of her earliest years and how they were showing up in her current life and her relationships. She came to the realization that she was an adult child. So join us for this interview to learn what an adult child is, how we can reckon with our past, and how we can name the pain of our past without placing blame. This is an enlightening conversation for us all, and through humor and transparency, Andrea takes us on a journey. So without further ado, meet Andrea Ashley. I'm so excited for this conversation today. Andrea and I uh, connected a couple months ago now, and from the moment I first talked to her, I just thought, one, she did such an amazing job of sort of articulating her lived experience, and I thought immediately that she'd be a great guest because I think that some of the challenges and struggles that you have overcome are just things that are so prevalent in all of our lives. And so I just loved the way that you gave voice to them. And I learned so much in our brief conversation. So I was excited for more of our audience to hear from you. Super. Yeah. Overcome or overcoming would probably be more appropriate. Yes, totally. Right. <laughs> in all process. Never yeah. All in process for sure. So initially I like my tagline was like, 
former shit show, but I realized that that's not appropriate. It's a recovering shit show, right? Because I'm, mm. that means I'm still a shit show from time to time and wouldn't have it any other way. Yes, that's yeah. awesome. We often joke at Onsite, there's just this like assumption that we'll just arrive at wellness. Mm. And it's a little bit of a shoe drop moment where you're like, actually, you get to be in this process forever. Yeah. And that's the good news. So. Mm-hmm. That's part of my problem. as well. <laughs> yeah, you are the host of the Adult Child Podcast, and it kind of just gives give people a glimpse into growing up in dysfunction and how you kind of like spent the last couple of decades, you know, seeking healing and being in that process. What made you decide to start a podcast and prompted you to start telling your story? Oh God, it's a long story. Where do I begin? We can get more into the backstory. But in a nutshell, as far as the podcast went, you know, so I hit this emotional bottom at nine years sober in more pain than ever before. I definitely was like, if this is what life is like with nine years sober, what the hell is the point? Um, but thankfully, you know, I, I, I realized that I was what my problem was. that I was an adult child and I was suffering from complex PTSD. But so part of what came from hitting this bottom was the realization that truly all I had cared about for the past nine years was like finding a guy and getting married. Mm. And not once had I truly considered what a fulfilling career would look like for me. And um, I was working as a CPA at the time. I was working in public accounting and I wasn't miserable. I guess I was kind of miserable. I was definitely not fulfilled. And I just sort of realized that there was like this potential within me that I was letting go to waste And it was time for that to change. So not only did I kind of embark on this journey to figure, to heal, but to like figure out why I was put on this earth. And it truly was just this crazy experience of just like divinely inspired interactions. And a lot of it was, it was just like me connecting with other people in bizarre ways and just seeing that my gift is what I like to say is like, I'm like unabashedly vulnerable and authentic. Mm. And I like have no warm up period. It's like me from the beginning. And what I found was that when I was being so vulnerable with strangers, that I'm somebody that I make them feel comfortable to open up to me. Mm-hmm. And so I would just have these really crazy interactions, whether it's like, you know, on the bus or in a restaurant, because I literally just talk to anybody. And I always, my icebreaker is always something as if it seems like we're old friends. You know what I mean? Like, I always just come up with some like really weird comment that you're like, do I know this girl? But people would say to me, I can't believe I'm telling you this. I've never told this to anybody. I just met you 30 minutes ago. And Mm. so, yeah, it was just, and then this stuff coming in that a lot of the times I was connecting with other people was that I was getting an opportunity to say like, oh, like I'm an adult child. And so that just, it just became very clear that this was what I was supposed to do. And, you know, leading up to that, like, it was just starting and stopping and starting and stopping. And I'll tell this story. So Mm -hmm. at seven years sober is when I kind of figured out what my, what a little bit of the problem was, but I wasn't, I wasn't fully convinced yet. But so I went and I had this reading from this intuitive, Mm -hmm. like a life path reading. I remember being super bummed out at what Mm -hmm. she told me. (laughs) <laughs> what did she, she tell was, you? It was like a lot of it just made no sense. And mm. then some of it was like, your purpose is spiritual. And two years later, I had a little bit more of an understanding. Still, the podcast was like not on the radar, but I re-listened to it. And a lot of what she was saying started to make sense. And it was talking about how my gift is communication. Mm. And um, and so then I 
a year or two after that, I started the podcast. I listened to it again about six months into the podcast. And what she said to me was crazy. She goes, your gift is communication. You have a way of saying things in in a way that people can receive it. She goes, you will only be fulfilled if your advocation and your vocation are aligned. She said, your purpose is spiritual and creative and it will be in the field of communication. That's super interesting. Could you take us back and tell us like, what is an adult child? How do you define that? And how did you come to the realization like, oh, I'm an adult child? So an adult child is somebody who, you know, the original term was adult children of alcoholics, but now it's adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional families. So essentially everybody, <laughs> mostly. And it's, it's somebody who's, you know, you know, we're all impacted by our childhood. And so it's somebody whose childhood resulted in, in faulty thinking, in faulty programming. So the way I like to describe it is it's somebody whose unresolved childhood issues surfaces and plays out in adulthood and not in a good way. And this can come in many forms, but I would say for most people, it comes in the form of relationships. It usually is struggles in our relationships. So I think what it says in the adult child book is it's somebody who responds to adult situations with self-doubt, self-blame, or a sense of being wrong or inferior, all mm-hmm. due to their childhood experiences. And I would say that the, I would say that most people, I considered a trauma disorder. I mean, I would say that most people that are adult children endured complex trauma and are probably suffering from a form of complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. But so the way that I found out was because I dated two alcoholics named Brian back to back. The Tale of Two Brian's, which is my first episode. So, you know, most of us, when we get sober, we have broken pickers, broken romantic pickers. I mean, I would say that most of us don't come into the rooms with like high self-esteem or like a a plethora of healthy relationship experience. So yeah, I had a broken picker, but so did all of my friends. But what happened was I started to see their pickers improve and my picker was not improving. Uh, little did I know I was living in a trauma response every time I was in a relationship, but I couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with me because each relationship at the end of each one, like I promised myself, I'm going to do things differently. I'm not going to ignore red flags. And I was completely incapable of doing so. And thank the Lord, I was not somebody that hopped from one to to the next relationship And so I dated Brian number one at seven years sober. The relationship lasted less than a month. (laughs) He clearly had a drinking problem, which was evident probably on the first date when he, when I told him that I was sober and he was like, oh, that's great. I've been trying to cut back, but I haven't been too successful. Like nobody with who doesn't have a drinking problem would ever say those words. Right. Yeah. So he ghosts me after a month and, um, I fell apart. Like I, Mm. I couldn't go to work. I became like a totally non-functioning human. And I had to have my mom come out and stay with me. And, you know, she, she was in active alcoholism. So that can tell you like how desperately I needed someone. And I literally felt like my husband of 30 years had just like tragically died in a plane crash. And it was in that pain that I had my first aha when I realized that there was no way that the way that I was feeling could actually be about this person. Yeah. Like I had known him for less than a month. We often say it on site, if it's hysterical, it's historical. And that's what I was just thinking about. Like, well, this feels like a really outsized response to the stimulus, but also it makes sense knowing if you look at your whole story. That's so, so interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And so then the second aha was that this was the feeling I had felt often as a child. Hmm. So about a month later, I went to a meeting and I heard this woman who had 30 years sober share about hitting a bottom at seven years and how it was through that bottom and it was related to a relationship that she came to terms with the true impact that her childhood had on her. She mentioned adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional families. So I go home, I read the book, my mind is blown. It was like the first time that I was seeing everything that I'd been thinking and feeling like on paper in words. Like, oh, someone was reading your mail. Yeah. This is, I'm not, it's not just me. Hmm. And, um, and so I see her at the meeting the next week and I go up to her and I was like, oh, your share impacted me so much. Thank you so much. She goes, that's great. She's like, I just want you to know though, that like just reading that book isn't going to be like enough. <laughs> she goes, this took, this is your life's work, Andrea. She said, this mm. took me years and years and years of therapy and you have to treat this as seriously as your alcoholism. I was 28 at the time. And I thought, years? <laughs> yeah. I don't have not years, lady. Yeah. No, well, it's not that I'm up. I don't have time. I, like, I'm basically yeah. a senior citizen. Like I need to have this shit figured out like yesterday, maybe a couple months. So I was like, okay, I'll take a year off from dating. I read this book. It'll be good. And what I often say in my podcast is like, just like learning you have cancer doesn't make the cancer go away. Like learning that I was an adult child and taking a year off from dating didn't do shit. So enter Brian number two, literally another alcoholic named Brian. That was the most painful six months of my life. I reached new depths of pain. I mean, I was leaving work at 11 in the morning to go pull him out of bars. It was absolute insanity. So... Like, I just felt strung out all the time. And how was your sobriety in this this time? I mean, I... <sighs> you stayed sober, you... Yeah, were- no, yeah, I stayed sober. I think what's good for me is, like, I... So I got sent to treatment for the first time in the eighth grade. Like, I... People, like, talk about, like, how it's fun, and then it's fun with problems, and then it's just problems. Like, that fun window was, like, really, really, really short for me. So I feel like that's something that you hear about and like you read about in the book, like talking about like, oh, I just want to go back. Like some people have 10, 20, 30 years of where drinking was fun and not really a problem. I didn't have that. So Mm. I don't really have to battle with that illusion of like, oh, I'm just going to go back to the like, it sucked. Yeah. Like it sucked. I was miserable. I didn't have any friends. So I guess that's a blessing, right? It's like, I know it wouldn't be any better. But, you know, I wasn't, I mean, the whole time I've never strayed away from the program. I mean, obviously there's been times where like I haven't been working a great program. There's been plenty of times when I'm not honest with my friends and my sponsor about my relationship stuff. But no, I mean, it's amazing that I stayed sober. But so it was at the end of that relationship that I was like, holy shit. (laughs) What I realized was that like, that this is why I drank. Hmm. You know, and like I knew that alcohol was always a symptom, but I think I learned through that experience that like my alcoholism was just a symptom and that my core wound is this, the disease of family dysfunction and everything that was ingrained in me and everything that was like passed down. But it was just so like, it was just really relieving to like know that what my problem was because I just spent so many years not knowing what was wrong with me. And that's when everything changed. You know, I 
I found a therapist who really specializes in this stuff. So that's the thing too. And that is a very common experience for adult children. We go to therapists for years and none of this can like tell us what the f- our problem is. Nothing comes out about this. No, they don't. They don't pinpoint it on this. It's the experience of so many people. Why is that? I don't think that enough of them are educated enough on complex trauma, to be completely honest. I mean, I think that that's probably what it is. Yeah. That they're only looking for that big T trauma. Is there a special modality that works best in sort of unearthing and uncovering this? Or is it just cognitive? I think it's to each their own. There's so many different things. I mean, so there's obviously there's EMDR. I mean, I've heard mixed things about using EMDR as far as childhood stuff. But like somatic stuff, I think is huge. Uh, that's an area that I I want to do more on. I, I think there has to be some element of trauma therapy. But that's the mm-hmm. problem too. It's so hard to find a good therapist. It's so and it's expensive. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um. But then you know, obviously, you know, twelve step meetings and. You know, there is adult children of alcoholics and there's so many ways. And I think it's about finding community is obviously huge, but it's a long process. <laughs> so you definitely have been a learner of like helping like with your own experience, but then also hearing other people process their experience mm-hmm. as an adult child. Um, what like threads and commonalities have you seen and doing that work on your podcast of just hearing people's stories and what is that sort of illuminated for you in your own experience? I think a lot of it is like, it's, it's that deep shame. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's that toxic shame that for myself, I didn't even know was there. You know, like I, on a conscious level, and I might be unique in this experience some, but like on a conscious level, like I had no idea how little I thought of myself, you know, like on the surface, I could have told you like, oh, I like myself. I'm smart. I'm pretty. I'm funny. But like my actions clearly showed otherwise. So I do. I think it's, it's that deep, deep shame that we are inherently flawed. You know, they say that toxic shame is when shame becomes internalized, right? So when an emotion is ter- internalized, it no longer functions as an emotion and becomes one's identity. And it's just this, it's, it's the repetition compulsion, right? It's just, I mean, that's, that's the common theme is like we just for years and years and years of not knowing what's going on with us and just like recreating like the same trauma, the same pain. I think that's what's crazy about it. It's like our psyche is actually seeking these things out to like make mm. us feel like shit, <laughs> you know, like it's like at least when you're like taking drugs and alcohol, like hopefully there's like some sort of like a euphoric thing, you know, that you're you're seeking. But with this stuff, it's like I literally was picking people who would abandon me, like who would trigger my fear of abandonment, you know. But yeah, I think the common theme is like just people spending years not knowing what was wrong with them. And then finally having the answer. And that's why I think that this topic is so, so, so important that it gets out more because a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah. A lot of people in in recovery already. Totally. What are there like practical tools now that you're aware of it that sort of like help you catch your behavior of like, hey, like I 
am not showing up in my full adult self? And like, what, what are some of the things that you kind of practice to stay present and grounded in who you are? As a- well, I can share one thing that happened that was kind of like a really good, what's the word I'm looking for? It showed, showed my fruits of my labor. I guess it was back in like February. I started talking to this guy. So I took a lot of time off dating, a lot. But so we started talking and it was like the first time I had felt those feelings, like really connected with somebody in a while. What I realized is like, I think it's so important that we do the work single. Like there's work that needs to be done single, but then unfortunately, and I really wish it didn't have to be this way. There's like more work to be done in relationships. So yeah, so this stuff, it's, it, it's, it's irrational of me to think that like, all of a sudden I'm going to take this time and be single and then all of a sudden, I'm going to get into a relationship and it's going to just be easy breezy. But so I started to have these feelings pop up that my fear of abandonment got triggered. And what was so beautiful was mm. that I was able to acknowledge that that was what was going on. You know, like I was able to, in the moment when those feelings were starting to pop up, to be like, oh, yeah, this is it. And oh, yeah, this actually has nothing to do with him. And in the past, I would have tried to do whatever I could to make the feeling go away or distract myself or tell myself I'm wrong for having these feelings. What's wrong with you? You're so pathetic. You've just been talking to this person for like a week. And so I was able to like sit, sit with myself, you know, and really, and just like kind of close my eyes and really connect to what I was feeling with in my body. And, you know, the inner child stuff has been a piece that's kind of, I've struggled at times to connect with, but I did. I imagined myself as like a little girl and I was just telling her, I will not abandon you. You know, I will not abandon Mm. you. And so then what ended up happening was a red flag came up (laughs) and I called like a friend who's a therapist. And I was like, this is like a hundred percent, like hell no. Right. (laughs) And they were like, (laughs) when I was feeling these feelings, like in the past, I would have called up and I would have been like, he just sent me a text that has a period instead of an exclamation point. Like, what do you think that means? Or, you know, I would like call them and be like, he hasn't texted me back in 20 minutes, like, and have them like reassure me. And this time I was like calling up people like, hey, my fear of abandonment is really getting triggered right now. So it was like, it was more of putting the lens on me instead of like putting it on the other person and their yeah, behavior. what they're doing wrong. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was huge and probably like way less annoying for my friends. <laughs> but I love that and that you still reached out to community because I think I have to. What someone could take from this story is like, oh, I don't need the reassurance from anyone else, so I should just deal with this on my own. But I loved how you reached out and just said, Hey, I'm approaching this from a healthier place. My fear of abandonment's popping up. Mm-hmm. Do you concur with me that this is something I should Yeah. Be and what about? can I what can I do different? So I called somebody right away and I was like, this is a red flag. And like, this is a non-negotiable, right? And they're like, yes, it's absolutely non-negotiable. So then he kind of ghosts me at the same time. Cause I think he knew that I was going to figure him out. So then we ended up like talking the next week and he was like, yeah, you know, it's just the distance. Like, cause I, I was in California and he was in Florida. And so in that moment, what I heard was I'm not good enough. Hmm. That's what I heard. Because if I was good enough, then distance wouldn't matter, you know? And that is where I immediately went. I definitely handled the conversation a lot better than I would, like, in the past, I probably would have just, like, tried to stay on the phone as long as I could. Like, I got off the phone, and I was really activated, you know? Like, I was in a trauma response, and I'm trying to call these people, and no one would answer. And then I finally got one person to answer, and he was just like, 
that sucks. And I was like, this is making me feel worse. And then finally, one of my friends did call me back. And I would say that in that conversation, within about 30 minutes, my nervous system like regulated. And by the end of that phone conversation, it was like, no, this has, it's not about me not being enough. This has nothing to do with me. Yeah. And that's huge. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. I want to take a minute and tell you a little bit of a story. So prior to 2020, we had long dreamed of creating accessible and affordable resources that would meet people wherever they are, in their homes, at their workplace, with their people, in their struggle, in their healing, and in their growth. Like so many of you, we found ourselves nudged into innovation during the last few years. The pandemic fast-tracked our digital dreams And as a result, we launched our digital efforts with a few practical resources to help you navigate the unprecedented times and heightened sense of loneliness, isolation, stress, and loss of control we were all feeling. We're really proud of the content that our world-class team put out. But we wanted to enhance our online environment to help you optimize your healing and growth by infusing a little more of that healing hospitality that OnSite has become known for. So about a month ago, we introduced OnSite Online, a new enhanced learning environment to help you optimize your relationships, your health, your leadership, and your life. This improved learning environment features greater interactivity with the course material, a better user experience, and access to our enhanced resources within a new community environment. If you had already purchased a class or course from OnSite, you've probably gotten several emails from us encouraging you to get into the environment and join our new beta community. But if you have yet to check out all that is OnSite Online, now is the time. You can head to onsiteisonline.com. And to celebrate the launch of this new digital platform, I want to make sure that my podcast listeners get 15% off our entire resource library with the code PODCAST. So all you have to do is head to onsiteisonline.com and use the code PODCAST. So many times in relationships, we just project on ourselves rather than looking at other people and saying like, okay, like I think it's almost a self-inflated view of ourselves. Like it must be me when really there is a whole other person in this relationship. <laughs> the other thing that struck me uh, when you were talking was how often we give terrible advice to yes. people that are trying to navigate dating and the modern age, you know, it's hard enough as it is. And then it's like, you get your friends involved and want to hear their feedback. And a lot of times it's just, it's horrible. And I I do it too, (laughs) for sure. Of like, it's like, you want to be encouraging. And so I think sometimes you don't say the thing that is direct Mm. and truthful about the things that the person can control. Um, Yeah. And so I just feel encouraged about like, how do I do that better? How do I be really truthful about what reflecting them back to them and like the opportunity for them to stand in the power of who they are and, you know, realize that they're dealing with people that are unhealthy and that it's not about them. And that's like my superpower. I call myself, I'm a motivational roaster. (laughs) Say, speak more to that. Well, I just kind of, I mean, I'll, I'm going to like, I'm going to build you up. But I'm going to roast you at the same time too, you know, because that's what I need. I'm just like, give it to me straight. It's not for everybody, but yeah. for the people that it does resonate with, it works beautifully. But like, 
I need to just tell it to me straight, you know? Yeah. My big message is like, there's nothing shameful about or embarrassing about like any of this stuff, you know? Yeah. It isn't. There's nothing. There's nothing to be ashamed about. So that's why I just tell all my cringy stories to let people know that <laughs> there's, it's, you know. It's hard. I embrace yeah. it. Have you... You you kind of started the conversation by saying like I just dump I just jump right in like I mm-hmm. you know ask people questions that feel like we've known each other for thirty years like how have you always been that way or I would make up that maybe that is a result of being in recovery and the people that I know that are in recovery are some of the most vulnerable people and connecting people I just would love to hear a little bit more about that well I think that part of it is being an only child but like my parents and like they took me out to. And we should maybe touch a little bit about my childhood too, because it probably would be helpful for people to hear. But my parents like took me like to like client dinners. I just had a lot of conversations with adults. So I feel like I just got very comfortable talking to adults. And then, I mean, I started going to therapy when I was eight or nine. I was, you know, I was the identified patient of my family, the scapegoat. So I feel like, and then I became the focus of the family. So I feel like I got very comfortable talking about my issues. And then the other thing too was, as a result of my alcoholism, I was such a mess. Like, hang out with me one time and, like, you will not want to hang out with me anymore. Like, here, here's a story. Like, senior year, I get invited to this birthday party. I'm only allowed to attend, the, attend this party if I don't drink. Oh, no, sorry. I negotiated to beer only. Initially, it was no nothing at all. So I negotiate to beer only. So I drink a bottle of wine before I go, fully in planning to, you know, follow this beer only policy. Well... My intentions don't mean shit when I'm drinking. I get into the hard liquor. It's only an hour before I'm asked to leave and two people escort me home. As soon as I get home, I called a taxi and I had that taxi take me right back to the party. And when my re-arrival was not warmly welcomed, well, I created quite a large scene, made quite a lot of noise. The neighbors called the cops and we all got arrested for underage drinking. So that's who I was when I drank. <laughs> so I had no friends, but I would literally walk around the suburbs that I grew up in and I would just talk to random people to try to find people to hang out with. And I've always been a question asker. So you mentioned a little bit of your childhood. Like what, what did that look like? Give us, give us kind of a, a overview. Yeah, so I, what I always like to say to people is that like a dysfunctional family and a loving family are not mutually exclusive. And you know- It's a good distinction. In adult child recovery, we have to talk about our upbringings and it's really important that people know that it's not about like placing blame or like throwing our families under the bus. But in order to heal, we have to like understand the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are. But what I also like to say too is like the stuff doesn't just like pop out of nowhere. Like our parents are just a product of their upbringing just as we are. So we often say like at onsite, like it's not about blaming, it's about naming it. And so I think was there for you a part of this process like uh, naming this and an ability to process it. Like, I think we talked about earlier where people don't do this work. They get into recovery, they're sober and they don't do the work because I think there is this fear of what does it mean if I do think dysfunctional family and loving family are mutually exclusive? What does it mean if I start to identify some of the ways that were dysfunctional? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? How to make sense of that? And it's scary. So what did that process look like for you? See, I've never had an issue talking about it. I've never not talked about it. I just had no idea that it impacted me in the way that it did. Yeah. Because I thought that because I could talk about it and not get upset that that meant it didn't impact me that much, Mm. you know? And I thought that because I was never physically or sexually abused, how badly could it impact me? And because 
I became the focus of the family from 12 to 19. I was the one acting out, you know? So I was never in denial about what happened. I just was completely oblivious of the the impact that it had on me. So I found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. So I was an only child. And yeah, so we were out to dinner and my mom, like I could tell something was off. And then at a certain point, my mom took me to the bathroom and I asked her what was wrong. And she said, I'm an alcoholic. And I obviously don't know what that means. And I asked and she just said, that means I can't drink. And it was like, I didn't know what that meant. But at the same time, I like knew exactly what it meant. And it was like, I went to bed that night and woke up the next morning almost as if I had like skipped several stages of like development. And I like inherited this sixth sense when it came to her drinking and and I could feel it in my body like hours before she would actually, you know, drink. And my dad was traveled a lot for work. So the times that she drank the most was when he was out of town. And thankfully nothing horrible ever happened, you know, but she drove me drunk and, you know, and my dad was 100% aware of all this. And when my dad was in town, my mom's alcoholism was a secret. So I was his emotional support. I was his confidant. He would have me search the house for booze with him. I remember one time going into the liquor cabinet with him, being like nine years old and taking a paint stick and like measuring and monitoring each, you know, thing in the liquor cabinet. And I found it all to be so exciting in a way. Like I remember sitting on the steps, listening to my parents argue and just like getting this like adrenaline rush. And I remember there would be times where like I would get a sense that something was going to happen that night. Like my mom was going to drink or something. And 99% of the times I was right. But I remember the few times when something didn't happen, I almost would be kind of bummed, like let down. You know, it was just like, that's how I dealt with it. It was like the fear was like, I, it was, I would get a rush from it. So I say that I think my first addiction was to the dysfunction within my family. This is what I'll say, like 75% of the time, like things were, were fine. You know, my mom wasn't, He was a binge drinker, you know, other than that, like, that's what I say. I have way more happy memories than sad or bad ones. Like we did a lot of fun things and, and from the outside, it was all about image, right? Like we, you know, it was like, as long as things look okay from the outside, there's no problems on the inside. And I'm sure that my dad continuing to like go out of town and work as much as he did was a way for him to deny what was actually going on. But it wasn't until I was 12 that he was the very first time that he told me, don't get into the car with your mom. She's been drinking. But so then I I woke up one night, I was nine in the middle of the night, and I just felt like I was going to die if I didn't sleep in my mom's bed. Like just like this intense, intense separation anxiety. And um, it started this pattern where I would fall asleep in my own bed. And then in the middle of the night, I would wake up and I would go switch places with my dad and he would finish the night in my bed. And they sent me to a therapist. And I remember asking my mom years later, did you, ever tell, did you ever tell that therapist that you were an alcoholic and that you and dad fought all the time? And her response was, no, it didn't seem relevant. Mm. So I became, you know, the identified patient of the family. And then at 12 is when I started drinking and, and using drugs. And, and you know what? That worked. That fixed the family. My mom stopped drinking as much and my parents stopped fighting as much. And so I got sent to rehab for the first time in the eighth grade and then spent the subsequent years in and out of rehabs and boarding schools and outpatients and, and then finally got sober at 19. But that worked. That kept the family intact. And because their attention was that now. Because, yeah, they had to like come together to deal with me. And once I got sober, well, that's allowed for the floodgates to, to open for them again, so— Thanks for sharing that. Which is, it's really hard. 
So, but I knew I could tell you all of these things. I could tell all, like, yeah. I could recount all of these stories. I've all, but I just thought because I had no emotions in talking about it. And also because I, a lot of kids don't know what's going on in the home. I knew everything that was going on, but I literally had no idea that like that. I didn't think any of that was trauma. You mentioned that like appearance was so important to your family. And then sort of in doing this work, you're uncovering your own experience and sort of as a byproduct speaking to their experience some how have you navigated that well or in a way that is respectful or absolutely I put a lot of thought into it you know I spent a lot of time so my second episode is like where I kind of get into everything that I just shared with y'all and so I really put a lot of thought into it and talked about it a lot with my therapist like do I say anything do I say nothing you know, I came to the conclusion that it's like very important that I share that part of my story, you know? And so when my parents, when my mom first found out a podcast, she goes, can you please not talk about us? And I said, well, I was like, I want you to know that like, I am going to be talking about it, but I'm doing it in a very loving and respectful way. And I'm making an emphasis on that a loving family and a dysfunctional family are not mutually exclusive. And so they were okay with it, you know? And um, my mom was listening in the beginning. I don't know if she does anymore. I don't think my dad has. But you know what? I love them. And they're very, you know, they're, they're proud of me in the way that they can be. My grandmother is a huge fan of my podcast. And so she's like 86 years old. Her only other child, so she's my mom's mom. So my mom's the alcoholic. And her only other son died at 50 from alcoholism. And so it's just been like really cool to connect with her on this. You know, we never grew, I never grew up around her. And so this podcast and kind of these experiences have, yeah, she like listens to me and all my cursing every week and she loves it. (laughs) That's awesome. But it's hard. I would imagine it would be very hard of figuring out like, I want to have agency of my own story. This impacts so much of it. And I think a big part of your message is like making this known because so many people don't. And I don't think there's an ability to talk about being an adult child without talking about the dysfunction that brought you there. And so I commend you for doing it in a respectful, kind way, but having agency of your own story. Well, that's the thing too, is like, and I've had this experience myself and it's very common. It's like once one starts to break away from the dysfunction, the rest of the family views that as a threat. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and so like naming the dysfunction becomes the problem rather than the dysfunction itself. And so a lot of times they'll try to do whatever they can do to rope you back in. So my, my whole thing is like, I don't participate in the dysfunction, but I also don't participate in the denial. So I'm not going to like try to carry the elephant out of the room, but I'm not going to ignore that there's an elephant in the room, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. I appreciate you being in process. I think that's such a gift that you give to people is saying like, I'm in process and you can be in process too. I think it gives people to be where they're at on the journey and gives them that permission. Um, We often ask on the podcast, like what is a practice that keeps you centered? So what is a practice that keeps you centered, Andrea? Exercise, 100%. Mm. Friendships, like it's, that's so important to me to stay connected to people that are important in my life. I'm a social creature and then in meditation, you know, that's just become mm. like a, a big, I feel like I've been a seeker there. I'm still kind of like looking for what is that one particular, but maybe I don't ever have to get there. What does your meditation practice look like? It, it's different. So I would say- it's like I'm always asking people because I want to be better at it. <laughs> so my therapist 
that I had prior to my current therapist, the one that didn't really help me with this stuff, but she helped me with a lot of other stuff. She really, she played a big role in me, like with spiritually, she played a big impact on me. But so, yeah, I went, so she has, I went to this place in where I had that reading with that intuitive, it's called the Delphi University. It's like in the Tennessee, Georgia borders. And I went and they taught this inner sanctuary training. And so they basically teach you to build this. It's like a temple inside your head. And there's like, there's, I don't know, maybe nine different rooms that you go into and they each serve like a different purpose. So like the first one is like a spiritual gym. So you would, you would go in and there would be like a punching bag. And so like, you would imagine yourself like, you know, punch in the energy coming off you. The next room's like with your higher self. So like, it's just like this whole like, you know, process. So I try to do that as much as I can. I wish I could be better about just sitting in silence. I try, I can do like five, five, 10 minutes, but I wander. So mantra, I mean, my favorite mantra is Om Namah Shivaya, which is, I think I bow to the divine self. So I had somebody tell me that that is like the mantra of the highest vibration, whatever the hell that means. So I'll say that. (laughs) Affirmations are big. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been so enlightening, so encouraging. It went so fast. Yeah, this is fun. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.